This week on Double-Edged Sword, cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture, Father Fred Gatchett talks about the need for Eucharistic revival. How did we get to a place where many Catholics don't believe in the real presence of the Eucharist? What can we do about it? Well, let's find out. Father Fred is being interviewed by Divine Mercy Radio's on-air host, Kelly Roper. Okay, so um, what are, what are, I, I guess uh-huh. they're talking about surrender. Yeah. And, um, what I was going to look at today, you know, kind of in the, in the context of that, is the Eucharistic revival that's coming up. You probably have heard about that. Yes. And um, it came about um, because I think it's the Pew Research people. It was, a, you know, kind of, it was, it was sort of a secular thing secular research group and you know you'll hear all these things all the time like they'll go you know well you know x percent of people believe y whatever it is you know you know 40 percent of people say that we should have nicer parks or whatever the case might be well the thing is is you know they'll always for whatever reason they're always interested in what catholics have to say and and they'll say well you know um you know 70 percent i saw in the wall street journal this morning they said that 70% 70% of people in the United States are all in favor of same-sex marriage. Mm-hmm. And um, I saw that um, when the Supreme Court legitimized it, some I think it was back in 2015, the rest of the country's kind of going, what's going on? You know, because it was about 50% of people thought that this is a good idea. Well, now it's up to 71% of uh, people in the United States think same-sex marriage is okay, and that's why it's going through Congress now. In- instead of the Supreme Court imposing it, put on it, imposing it upon us like they've done so many other things, well, now it's going to go through Congress. And the Senate passed it, you know, saying, you know, they're, they're going to they're protect same-sex marriage, and the House will no doubt pass it. And, of course, Biden, who's no more Catholic than, than the man on the moon, um, he'll sign it. And um, and so the thing is, is if you if you talk to people and say, well, should there be same-sex marriage? And then you got 71 percent of the people saying yes. Well, then they'll go, then they'll say, well, let let's pull Catholics. Are you Catholic? Yes, I'm Catholic. Do you support same-sex marriage? And what you'll find is that you know Catholics in general will pull right along with Americans. And so my guess is it's probably a pretty safe bet that 71 percent of Catholics will say that same-sex marriage is okay. This is for a whole different show. But the thing with this is usually, though, when you say, well, but now let's cut it a little bit finer. Let's, let's ask Catholics who go to church on Sunday, okay? Because that's where the, where the, where the rubber kind of meets the road. And so you would have, like with abortion, you know, Catholics poll with the, the population at large in, in favoring abortion. But usually when you say, well, but let's, let's ask Catholics to go to church on Sunday. And when you ask Catholics to go to church on Sunday, the percentage of, of people of Catholics supporting abortion goes way, way down mm-hmm. and um, for ones to go to church on Sunday. Now, yeah. you're going, well, that's a good deal. But now here's where it got really frightening is they would ask people, oh, you're Catholic. Oh, yes, I'm Catholic. Uh-huh. And so now when you go to mass on Sunday and you receive that little wafer, what is that? Mm-hmm. And you know, oh, it, it represents Jesus. It stands for Jesus. It's it's a it's a reenactment of the Last Supper. You know, so on and so forth. You know, basically Protestantism. And um, and so then, but they said, well, okay, let's ask Catholics to go to church on Sunday. And so they asked Catholics to go to church on Sunday. What do you receive? 
and 69% of Catholics who go to church on Sunday said it's a symbol of Jesus. It's a representation. 69% of Catholics, in other words, do not know or do not believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, you know, in spite of what the, what the Bible clearly says. You know, Jesus says at the Last Supper stories in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this is my body, this is my blood. He doesn't yeah. say this represents my body, this symbolizes my blood. Yeah. Um, in 1 Corinthians 11, you know, St. Paul says, I received from the Lord what I handed on to you, namely the Lord Jesus, the night he was betrayed, took bread, said the blessing, this is my body, likewise with the cup, this is my blood. And, um, and then, of course, in John 6, where we have the very extensive Last Supper discourse, where Jesus says, my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the Bible is just 100% consistent on this. There is no place in the scriptures where the Eucharist is being described in symbolic or representational terms. And yet 69% of church-going Catholics say that this is some kind of a representation or a symbol. Um, the bishops are, you know, quite rightly, um, you know, alarmed at this. And so that's why they've, they've declared this Eucharistic revival that will take place over the next couple, two or three years and, um, and, and you know, try to get folks re-catechized and re-evangelized to, you know, kind of understand what's going on. I think that, you know, the thing with the real presence is, is it has to be taught. I mean, it doesn't come naturally. I think what comes naturally is the idea that, well, yeah, I suppose you could say that little piece of bread, you know, stands for Jesus somehow. That would be a very natural thing. This is something that's supernatural. Yeah. And um, I think in a certain sense, it's kind of like gratitude. Yeah. You know, we, we don't, um, we don't, we, we're not naturally great, grateful people. We're naturally greedy people. And to prove this to yourself, the example I always use is if a grandma comes and visits her, her grandkids, you know, and she's got her favorite little grandson or favorite little granddaughter that's, you know, four years old or whatever. And grandma comes in and goes, oh, there's grandma's little sweetie and reaches in her purse and gives the kid a lollipop. You know, what's the first thing the kid's going to do? He's going to snatch out of grandma's hand, rip the wrapper off and stick it in his mouth. Yeah. And then, you know, mom's down behind and says, wait, wait, what do you say to grandma? And then the kid, you know, kind of embarrassing, sheepish little eyes goes, Thank you, you know, <laughs> because again, your know, gratitude has to be taught. Yeah. Um, hopefully by the time the kid's 18 years old and they graduate from high school and, you know, people are sending them graduation gifts and so on, it, they'll naturally then by then it'll be a habit and they'll send out thank you notes and so forth for it. But gratitude has to be taught. And I think the real presence in the Eucharist, it has to be taught as well. And so, you know, I think that the reason why you got 69% of church-going Catholics saying that, you know, it's just some kind of a symbol or representation is because it hasn't been taught somehow. And so, you know, really kind of what I want to spend, you know, this, my time today talking about is, you know, maybe going back and look at some of the reasons why so few people really believe in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, so many church-going Catholics, and then look at some remedies, you know, as we're, as we're entering into this Eucharistic revival, you know, how... You know, we can humbly surrender ourselves to the will of God and to the teachings of the church and say, and the teachings of the scriptures, that, you know, this, you know, this really is the person of Jesus. This isn't just some, you know, representation or something. Um, but, you know, Father, when you were talking about, you know, John 6 and the bread of life discourse and you must eat, you know, and it wasn't just a, you know, a, a, a very light thing. It was very, very 
powerful and, and intentional when he said, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And, you know, people started walking away. And he didn't oh, yeah. say, you know, no, 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 I, I didn't really mean it. It was just kind of symbolic. No, he didn't. He, re, he re-upped it and made it an even stronger language. Is that correct? Can you tell us a little bit about oh, that, yeah. too? Yeah, I've, you know, I've taught about that extensively. You yeah. know, when, when, when you look at first, You've got the, you, I always look at it as you, you've got like concentric circles, like a target. And the, you know, the outer circle is just the crowds, which is just kind of a mulligan stew of, of probably Jews and Greeks and Gentiles and, you know, pagans and whatever else. So you've got that bunch. Then you've got the Jews. Then you've got the disciples. Then you've got the 12. And the center at the bullseye, you got Jesus himself. And so first he's addressing the crowds. And um, they had eaten, you know, and then the first part of John 6 was the multiplication of loaves and fish. And so the crowds are going, let's hang out with this guy. He gives away free food. And and so the next day they come looking for him. And Jesus sees, he goes, you didn't come looking for me because you saw signs. You came looking for me because you ate your fill of the loaves. And he goes, you should work for the food that, you know, that lasts a life, you know, eternal. And um, and they go, well, give us this food. And he says, well, I'm it. And then at that point, they go, well, religious nut job here, no more free food, <laughs> nothing to see here, yeah. let's go. Yeah. So, you know, those folks, you know, now you've lost the crowds. So now Jesus is talking to just the Jews. And he's got an advantage with the Jews because he's a Jew. And so he, and he does, he talks about the manna, you know, that Moses ate in the desert and so on. And because they'll all, they'll all understand that kind of talk. And so um, then, you know, he, then he says, the bread I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. And then it says the Jews push back and say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And then Jesus pushes back and says, let me make this clear. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. He never said anything about blood before. So he's digging his heels in deeper. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And then he goes, you know, my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Then it says, many of his disciples go, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? Well, what happened to the Jews? They left. Then I was talking to the disciples. Well, he's got a double advantage with his disciples. They like him. And, um, and they're used to hearing him, hear him say weird stuff like, you know, pray for your persecutors and love your enemies and so on. They would be the ones I would think that would say, well, okay, this is kind of odd, but let's just hear him out. It'll eventually make sense. And instead, you know, Jesus explains it further and it says, because of this, many of his disciples went to their, back to their former way of life and no longer went about with him. Now the disciples are gone. So he's looking up at the 12. And I always, you know, whenever I'm teaching my class, I'll get to this next semester when I teach my sophomores, you know. I always tell them, you know, Jesus didn't look up and go, gee, boys, we took a big hit in the polls today. Um, let's get a focus group together and rewrite <laughs> this statement to make it more inclusive. Yeah. No. Yeah, yeah. He just looks up at the 12 and says, you guys want to go too? You know, I'll get me 12 more apostles if I have to, but I'm not backing down on this. And so, you know, it, it's, you know, the, the biblical teaching on this is just 100% clear. And, you know, why people believe something different can only be because they probably haven't read the scriptures. But also, I think more importantly, they've reduced Christianity to a set of propositions rather than a relationship with a living person. And um, because I think that it's, it's a cycle that kind of feeds on itself. That if we know the person of Jesus, we'll revere his presence, his real presence in the Blessed Sacrament, which will deepen our knowledge of the person of Jesus, 
which will increase our reverence for him in the Blessed Sacrament, which will deepen our knowledge, and it feeds on itself like a, like a cycle. And, um, but I, somewhere along the line, that cycle's gotten broken. What I want to do in the next part is talk about what broke that cycle and what we can do to probably maybe fix it. You know, Father, I, I couldn't help but think, you know, once when I was reading the Bread of Life discourse, it just stuck out to me that it's that at John 6, 66, 666 is where they walked away. And I just was like, wow, that, that's, that, you know, there's no coincidence, right? And, and uh, it just was amazing to me. Well, again, I think, you know, when we look at the, at the fact that, that um, you know, such a huge percentage of church-going Catholics don't believe in the real presence, in spite of the biblical teachings clearly to the contrary, um, you kind of have to wonder, you know, how do we get here? Yeah. And... Um, and I'm, you know, a couple of the things I'm going to throw out, I think, I think probably the biggest one is the disconnection between receiving the sacrament of confession and receiving the Eucharist. You know, when, when you look, I, I always, you know, you look at Hayes, for example. When you look at the three churches, you look at St. Joe's, you look at St. Mary's, you look at St. Nick's. You know, when, when, if you look in St. Joe's, there's four confessionals in St. Joe's. You know, and, and because back in the day, there would have been, you know, on Saturday afternoon, there would have been four Capuchin friars in all four of those confessionals, and there would have been lines of people because people back in the, you know, back before, say, I don't know, 1970, 75, whatever, no one would think of going to community if they hadn't been to confession the day before. And, um, and this, this comes from 1 Corinthians 11:27. This is, you know, in St. Paul's, you know, teaching on the Eucharist, where he says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily, in a state of sin, will have to answer for the body and blood of the Lord. Once again, you can't answer for a symbol. Here's St. Paul mm. saying, no, you can answer for the body and blood of the Lord. A person should examine himself and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so there you've got the teaching from St. Paul telling us that we need to be in the state of grace to receive the sacrament of the Eucharist. Yeah. When people quit going to confession and they just kind of go, it's like, well, I guess it, we've done, we've said our, we've sung our songs and said some prayers. It's time for me to go up and get that wafer, as I have heard it said. Mm. Um, then, yeah, I mean, if there's, if there's no preparation going into receiving the Blessed Sacrament, that would include going, you know, making sure that we're in the state of grace, going to confession, you know, the one-hour communion fast, even, you know, things like not dressing like a tramp to come to Mass. Yeah. You know, for for a while there, you well, at least they're coming. At least they're coming. Well, yeah, they might be coming, but you know, you look at at the at the parable that Jesus tells about the wedding feast, and you know, the 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 people that were invited didn't want to come, and so the 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 king sends you know sends his servants out and says, go out to the to the roads and the byways. I want my banquet hall filled with banqueters, and so he they bring in the poor, the blind, and the lame, and so on. But there's a guy, and you know, they, they, you know, these people you're you're led to believe, you know, they, yeah, they probably weren't going to win any fashion contests or anything, but they wore the best they had, and you know, they might have been a ragtag looking bunch, but they put on the best they had, because you know, the king comes up to a guy and says, "What's the deal? How can we come to this wedding without a wedding garment on?" And the guy just kind of, you know, he just is reduced to silence, and the king says, "Get him out of here," you know. And so, again, I'm not saying that people have to, you know, come to Mass with tuxedos and evening gowns and things like that. 
but good lord you know when the girls come in with those jeans that are all ripped out in the front and you know wearing midriff shirts and you know the guys come in with their ball caps on and so on it's just like they're saying with their you know by their what was going through their head before they came to mass that this is nothing this 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 isn't anything outside of going to the pizza hut and so um you know, but but getting back, I think the the main thing is so is this disconnect between going to confession and going to communion. I remember once when I was the pastor at St. Joe's, there was a a guy from Eastern Europe. He was from Latvia or Estonia. He came to mass, and um, we were talking. He, he introduced himself after mass. He spoke really good English, you know, pretty good accent, but he spoke pretty good English. And and he he goes, my gosh, he goes, all these people went to communion. Did they all go to confession? I said, uh, uh, not by a long shot, yeah. and um, and he was just aghast, you know that that they you know that people would do that, and so um, he, again Pope Francis said in Evangelium Gaudii, he says the Eucharist, although it is the fullness of sacramental life, is not a prize for the perfect, but a powerful medicine and nourishment for the weak. And see, that's what we have to understand is that you know yeah the the Eucharist is not a prize for the perfect; it's medicine for the sick, and we're all sick and we all need the medicine. But if we're dead, you know, if, if, our, if our soul is dead because of mortal sin, and we'll get to that here in a second, well, you, you can take a dead person, you can jam all the pills you want down their throat and pump them up with all the IVs you want, and that medicine's not going to do a bit of good. You know, but, but um, you know, so if, we're, if our soul is dead because of mortal sin, then we've got to go to confession because that's what, you know, reanimates us and so forth, and then... You know the Eucharist can you know do the the wonderful work that it does. Um, the thing it is, if we do not know or if we refuse to believe that we are sick, we won't look for that medicine. And why is that? Well, I think one of the things is we've over we've over over psychologized spirituality. Um, you know, Bishop Fulton Sheen was saying this way back in the 1950s, and it's only gotten worse. I mean, this idea: why should I seek the medicine of the Eucharist if all I need is counseling? And um, and so again, you know, back in the day. You know, there was times when no Catholic would consider going to communion if they hadn't gotten to confession the Saturday before. Now, is going to confession every week an absolute requirement? No, it's not. But we do have to be in the state of grace. And if we don't go to confession regularly, our conscience is going to get worn down and numbed down and dumbed down. And the next thing you know, you know, we're committing mortal sins thinking, eh, what's the big deal? It's not like I killed someone. I mean, if I had a buck for every time I heard that, I could retire in luxury. You know, you know, it's not like I killed someone. I mean, yeah, I got drunk and had sex with my girlfriend. It's not like I killed somebody. Or, hmm. Well, yeah, you know, my my brother and I got into a fight 20 years ago, and we haven't spoken. It's not, it not like I killed him, you know. Well, the thing is, is, you know, when, when we're playing that game, you know, we're, we're flirting with disaster because um, the, the, the when, when we numb and dumb down, you know, the, our morality, well, then the Eucharist isn't going to be anything to us at all. I mean, I remember a while back there, there's a woman that came up to me after Mass, and she was justifiably aghast. This guy comes up, and, you know, when, you know I, he came in my line, I gave him communion. I didn't watch, you know, I give people communion, and they go off. i got to give communion to the next person. I can't inspect every person. But I guess this, this guy comes up and receives communion, has a little girl with him, and the little girl holds her hand up, Daddy, me, me. And so the guy just broke the house in half and gave half to the daughter and consumed the other half himself. And, you know, because you, you can tell he, he has no concept. 
of who it was, not what, who it was was just placed in his hands. And, um, and you know, how does that happen? Well, so again, I think that a big piece of it is the disconnect between going to confession and receiving the Eucharist. We read about 1 Corinthians 11, 27 and 29. I think, you know, probably along with that is the decline in priestly vocations. Because, you know, I, when you, you think about what it would have been like in the mind of a 10-year-old boy in 1946, you know, to go to St. Joe's, to go to, you know, mom and dad, come on, kids, we're going to confession on Saturday, load up the kids, go down to the church. You know, there's the four confessionals going there, lines of people. This would really have a, you know, would have a, make an impression on the mind of a young kid to where, you know, and that impression would be the thing that would maybe orient his mind and his heart to hear God calling him into the priesthood. But we kind of went into a death spiral. People stopped going to confession. Well, then it's like, well, you know, then the priests are going, why should I go out and sit in that confessional for an hour and a half when only three people are going to come? Yeah. So then they cut back on, on confessions to where, you know, a lot of times you, know, you look in a lot of parishes and so on. Well, you know, we hear confessions for 15 minutes before Mass. You know, then that telegraphs out to the people that, well, confession must not be that important because it's just something you kind of squeeze in before you go to Mass and so on. Now, the good news is we're seeing a reversal of that trend. More and more parishes are making confessions more available. And, um, and the lines, especially with the young people, you know, you, you talk to the young people that go to the National Catholic Youth Conference, um, NCYC, which you have in Indianapolis every other year, or the college students that go to um, the Fellowship of Catholic University students. They have a, a conference every year called SEEK, and um, the campus centers within Kansas have the Kansas Catholic College Student Convention every other year. And when, you know, when you look at those, the, the numbers of young people lining up to go to confession, is, is, it, it's just huge. Yeah. And, um, and so w- w- kind of what we're seeing is the younger crowd ages like 15 to 25 or 30, they seem to have rediscovered the Sacrament of Reconciliation. And, um, and they're, you know, they're, you know, I think they're going to be the ones that are kind of, kind of going to build the thing back up again. Yeah. I think another thing is the decline in marriages. When you have so many people just aren't getting married anymore, they just move in together for a life of mortal sin through fornication, and they rationalize and justify their actions, um, to the, and then, then they just basically assassinate their conscience. Um, then they decide, oh, let's go ahead and get married. Yeah, that might be kind of fun. Yeah, I can put on a dress and waltz down the aisle, and you know, we'll put you in a tuxedo, and we'll buy some flowers, and we'll invite our friends, and it'll be a nice time. So then you have a church full of people that are there with this gal wearing a white dress, which it's like, well, what does the white dress stand for? And, you know, I, I teach this when I teach high school kids. You know, well, it stands for virginity. It stands for purity. Well, they've been living together for three years. Is she a virgin? Is she pure? Why is she wearing a white dress? Everybody knows what they're doing. Everybody knows what they have done. Um, and, in fact, a lot of the people in the, in the congregation are perfectly okay with it. So then they make a mockery of the sacrament of matrimony, and then they sit there and receive the sacrament of the Eucharist as a sacrilege. And again, that just telegraphs to, to the rest of the, to the church full of people with the loudest voice the church has, the celebration of our sacramental liturgies, that these sacraments are nothing, and they're void of any kind of substance. You know, we really are throwing our pearls to swine. And so, you know, again, I think that when, we, when we're looking at, at things we can do to... Um, you know, to reverse this, 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 
disgraceful trend of 69% of people, you know, not believing in the in the presence of Christ in the Eucharist, it's going to have to start with things like, you know, the sacrament of matrimony, the sacrament of reconciliation, you know, things like that. I remember, you know, years ago when I was a little kid going to Holy Cross Parish in Hutchinson, Kansas. The parish was built in 1959, and we were there in like 1967, 68, around there. And um, whenever they built the church, they, they built the school first, and then there was like a gymnasium attached to the school, and, um, and that was the church. <laughs> and uh, they've since, they've since in the 1980s, they've since built a, a proper church. But back in those days, you know, the, the church was just kind of a, it was kind of a plain thing, but that's where we went to church. And I remember one time in the middle of Mass, Father was given, the, the, the pastor was given the sermon, I have no idea what he was talking about, but um, he's given the sermon, and all of a sudden the entire church spontaneously dropped to its knees. Hmm. And Father turns around, and he dropped to his knees. I'm going, what the heck's going on? Well, then I dropped to my knees because everybody else did too. Hmm. But um, what the deal was, the associate pastor came in, went to the tabernacle, which was front and center up behind the altar, went up to the tabernacle to get a host. And my guess is he probably got a sick call. He, you know, somebody, he was probably over in the rectory and someone called and said, hey, you know, so-and-so's dying and they want to go to communion. And so Father comes over, he opens the tabernacle, and everybody just drops to their knees. You know, well, see, things like that tell you that back in 1968, whenever the heck that was, you know, people people knew that whatever is in is in that box up there. It ain't just bread. It's not just wafers. You know, and um, and so you know, people had a, had a true sense of of what that was about. Or you know, again, I remember as a small the when the when the first wedding I ever went to as a little kid. You know, mom was explaining to us, you know, here's what's going to happen. You know, and so on. And um, again, this would have been probably about 1967, somewhere around there. And when it came time for Holy Communion, the priest gave the host to the bride and the groom, and then he came and brought the chalice to them. And I remember I was just mesmerized watching the bride in the white bridal dress drink from the shiny silver chalice. I have no idea who the couple was, and I was young and naive enough to you know, connect the purity of the white dress with the sacredness of drinking from that chalice. But, um, you know, maybe they're in a state of grace, maybe they weren't, you know, but, you know, I, I took the whole thing on face value. And I was just in awe of it, you know, this, you know, this woman with this white dress drinking from that chalice. I thought, there is just something ultra sacred about that. And nowadays, you know, it's, 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 it's a farce, it's a joke. And so, you know, we, we, we wonder why 69% of people don't believe in the, in the real presence. Well, look at the way we treat the Blessed Sacrament. And, um, and so, again, I think that, you know, the, the, to reverse that trend, to get people understanding, you know, we, we can't just spout John 6 at them. That's a good start. But, um, but I think we're going to have to, you know, reconnect sacrament of reconciliation, make sure we're in the state of grace before we go to communion, make sure we're in the state of grace when we receive the other sacraments. You know, I remember, you know, I got into a discussion with this one time with one of our former bishops, Bishop Ed Simmons, because we were talking about the, the difficulty of dealing with, the, the couples that we have that present themselves from for marriage and you know none of them go to mass you know they're all contracepting they're all fornicating it's just like how do you get ready for a moment of grace like this and you know bishop Fitzsimmons was kind of advocating well fred you know we got to work with people and i see i understand that bishop you know we need to you know bring them along i said but i asked him i say you know pope saint john paul the great told us that holy orders and matrimony are two sides of the same coin 
you know, that they're both sacraments of commitment and sacraments of service. And, as, and we know as one sacrament goes, so goes the other. When you have cultures, when you have periods of history, where you have um, healthy marriages and lots of marriages, you also have healthy vocations and lots of vocations. When you go through a period where you don't have very many marriages, and the marriages you have are you know, not that whippy, you don't have very many vocations either. And so I asked him, I said, you know, would you ordain a guy to the priesthood who prepared for ordination the way most of these people, the way most of these couples prepare for the sacrament of matrimony. And he said, well, I wouldn't. I said, well, I wouldn't either. I wouldn't blame you. Yeah. I said, but I think that's what we have to look at. I mean, the, this, is all just, this is all bound up together. There's all kinds of little tentacles coming out of this thing that um, we have to kind of address. And um, again, I think that, you know, reconnecting the sacrament of the Eucharist with, with the sacrament of reconciliation, you know, getting marriage back to the way that it should be and so on, um, we're not going to get people to come around to really appreciating the presence of Christ in the Eucharist until we get these other things take care of as well. Yeah. So. We need to take a short break right now, but don't change that dial. We'll be right back with more about the need for Eucharistic revival with Father Fred Gatchett. We're back on Double-Edged Sword, cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture on Divine Mercy Radio. Father Fred Gatchett. The need for Eucharistic revival. Kelly Roper conducts the interview. Talking about the true presence, talking about that that sacrament that we receive. And, you know, it made me think, Father, when you were talking about uh, the man who came up with the little girl and, and broke the... the um, the true presence in half and gave her half and and he consumed half there was probably not malice in that but just a real lack of understanding and it also made me think too that you know one way that we can surrender since our whole theme here is surrender i'm going to just throw this out here hopefully nobody will will object to it but but uh, you know if we would go back and we would surrender and we would could go back to receiving on our tongue, that kind of thing's not going to happen. You know, we're not going to receive it in our hand and break it in half. You know, there's not. Well, that was that was one of the one of the, one of the remedies I was going to throw out there. Is well. there you go. I'll let you go with that then. Let's go with it. Well, because you know, again, it's one of the one of the deals. You know, some some people, you know, they've you know they know how to reverently receive the Eucharist in their hand and consume it and so on. But, um, but it does, it opens itself up to, it, receiving communion in the hand in and of itself is not a bad thing, but it opens itself up to bad things. Mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, I'm not, you know, saying that, you know, well, you know, you better receive communion on the tongue or you're a bad person or you don't believe in the real presence. But I would just kind of ask people, you know, why don't we think about this? Because really, when we receive communion on the tongue, that's exactly what we're doing. We're receiving. You know, it's being given by the church, by the representative of the church, the, the priest, the communion minister, and then we are receiving it as opposed to taking it. And mm-hmm. see, I, I've always, I've always, that, that, that particular terminology, you know, well, is it okay if I take communion? 
And um, again, that's that's, that's a Protestant mm-hmm. term. And because no, we, you know, we don't take it; we receive it. It's given to us by Christ, and we receive. And in order to receive, we have to, you know, to receive something, we have to surrender to it. We have to be humble to it, and so on. And so, um, again, I, you know, I think that it will, will really be good to see. It would be just be kind of a spontaneous return from of people just kind of going, yeah, I think this is probably better if I just receive the Blessed Sacrament on, on my tongue. That would that would be kind of a better thing. And because, um, like I said, if it, I think anybody that gets up and just says, look, if you come up and you know hold your hands out, I'm not going to give you communion. Yeah. That's not going to work. Yeah. Um, but I think that you know, again, part of a catechesis and part of a of, of a re-evangelization, you know, would just be that where people would go, well, why would I want to do anything else? Of course, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. And um, I would really like to see that happen. I think that would that wouldn't solve all the problem, but I think it, it's, it'd be one more one more brick in the wall to you know to shore things up. And and it really does because I, I used to receive in my hand, you know, many years ago, and and you know. It, it, it was very awkward, I'm telling you. It was very awkward in the beginning to go from receiving in your hand to receiving on the tongue. But now I can't imagine any other way. And, and you know, you think about, you know, receiving in the hand and the, the particles. You know, we believe that it, that truly is Jesus Christ. And, you know, we can't help but have some particles left on our hand whenever we receive it in our hand and then put it into our mouth. And, and so, you know, it just really is a surrender. It really is just a surrender. Yes, Lord, I believe in your true presence. And I, I want to receive worthily. Well, I think, again, it all kind of ties back to vocations as well. One time... One of the priests in our diocese, we were at away at a at one of our clergy conferences or whatever. Father Don Fonenstiel lives there in Hayes. Don, if you're listening to the radio, um, Don's a great guy. Yeah. And um, we were talking about vocations, and, and Don said, he goes, he goes, as a little kid, he goes, I was just in awe of this, of this intimate relationship that the priest had with the Blessed Sacrament. You know, only the priest went to the tabernacle. Only the priest could touch the host with his hands because the priest would purify his hands afterwards mm, and so on. Mm. And, um, and he goes, now, you know, just, you know, anybody goes to the tabernacle, they grab the spoil and bring it out and plop it on the altar and, you know, people receiving the Blessed Sacrament in their hands and so on. And again, see, I, I think that, that number one, that's, that, that, that's a, it's a blow against vocations because, you know, the, 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 the young boys that are out there watching it and going, well, there's nothing more special in that wafer than there is, you know, in a, you know, a chocolate chip cookie. You know, mm-hmm. what, what's the big deal? And, um, and number one, and then number two, it just telegraphs a message out to, to the people at large that, you know, this, there's really nothing special here. It, it, it really is just kind of a symbol or a representation or something. Mm-hmm. Whereas, again, if we, if we handle the Blessed Sacrament with that sense of awe, I think more again the young, the 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 young man would be looking at that and going, that's something that I think I want mm. to be a part. Of. But when when we reduce it to just nah whatever, then no wonder we don't have any vocations. Sure. Yeah, that, that's such a, a strong point, such a strong point. We're grateful for all the wisdom that you shared with us this last hour. So I would like for you to um, give uh, your blessing to each of us and then also um, last words, last words, whatever you would like to, to share to wrap up this hour. Okay, well, my mighty God bless you and keep you. Let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he look upon you kindly and give you his peace. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
Amen. Amen. And God bless all of our listeners. Thanks for tuning in to Double-Edged Sword, Cutting to the Heart of a Deceptive Culture. Family, heaven is not seen, but we know it is real. Likewise, these airwaves are not seen, but we can hear them, so we know they are real. If you want to save souls for heaven through these airwaves, please go to dvmercy.com and click on Donate or scroll down until you find the address to send in a check. May God bless you. You're listening to Divine Mercy Radio. If today you hear His voice, harden not your heart.